When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you are listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been capturing bright ideas on video from some of the smartest people in the world. On Think Again, we revisit these ideas. It's a total surprise. My guest and I have no idea in advance which interviews we'll be talking about. This is part two of my conversation with the legendary Henry Rollins. In part one, we talked about monogamy and relationships. In part two, this conversation continues with two more surprise subjects from Big Things producers. What's up next, Jonathan? So this one is Paul Ekman on whether police should wear anger detectors. The police are there to protect us. They're there for our safety. Now, occasionally, there will be a bad apple, uh, but my work with police has suggested that that's really exceptional. The problem is they have a gun. So they can do a lot of harm quickly. But the problem is the pressure that police are under to make instant decisions for their safety and the safety of others. We all have bad days. Well, if a policeman is in that state, and they're not any different than the rest of us in that regard, it's a lot more dangerous. So it's a dangerous job that requires that you're in a calm state of mind when you go out to perform it. And we have the means to both assess that and further that, which is not deploying it. My biggest dream, and I haven't yet been able to convince any police department to try this, is to see whether we couldn't have a really fast, easy technological assessment. So before someone goes out on the beat, they sit down and their heart rate, blood pressure, skin conductance is monitored five or ten seconds, says, yes, you're in your normal state, go ahead and good luck. Or, boy, you're very aroused today. Let's see if we can do something to help you calm down a bit before you go out on the job. I believe it could reduce some of the problems we currently have because police are human like everyone else. All human beings have bad days. We need a way to be able to specify This policeman's having a bad day today. Let's see what we can do with a few minutes of a few exercises to bring him into a calmer state so he can go out and do his job in a way he won't regret. I couldn't agree more with what that man said. After all, they are people. They will have bad days. When you put a cop's uniform on, no one might know your name, but they all have an idea of you. And you are walking around in a huge target. So what if the the guy who's off his meds or he's somehow extremely angry or whatever, he looks at you and you remind him of that cop who did him wrong all those years ago. And sadly, today, it's you. I think both the citizenry and law enforcement, everyone needs to get some information on how the other one is living, thinking, feeling. It's a delicate relationship because when a citizen gets shot, Unless it's completely obvious, it 
goes into a gray area and it taps into every slight that that person or that demographic or that ethnicity or neighborhood or county has suffered. And so America is in this unenviable position of never, in my, just my opinion, we never did all the heavy lifting required to live up to the expectations that we put on ourselves of the Constitution, of our very awesome legal system, and the genius, and I'll use that word, the genius institution of democracy. And we often fall short. I think those are high marks to, to clear anyway. But you have a society now that is becoming more and more polarized since at least Reagan, or more recently, uh, George W. Bush too. And you have a black president. And I think some of this has to do with that. And I remember I was suckered into doing one of these awful MTV poetry events where I stood around with a bunch of the, the most pretentious people I've ever been in a building with in my To this day, I, I bite through an iron rod. I'm so mad. And I said at one point before I read something, I said, maybe policemen should be poets. Maybe they should be philosophers. Maybe they should be regarded as people with a real keen insight into the human state, which no doubt they be like them and every bartender becomes that whether they want to or not. And then this poet guy went on after that and went, yeah, yeah, maybe we should do police poems or whatever. I'm like, really, man? Too many witnesses. I, I'd kick your ass right now because I think I was right about that. And I don't know about you, but I've hung out with and met a lot of cops, a lot of detectives, and I've heard stories that will peel the paint off your car, like kids in frying pans, like just things no one should see. Right. And how do you expect that person yeah. to say, hey, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt? They're traumatized for a living. I mean, if they're... Well, it's PTSD, but that's their job in that there's no recovery from them. Like a, a person who comes back from Iraq or Afghanistan after multiple rotations, they're done. In putting them in that position, we're asking them to think flexibly, creatively, responsively in the moment, and at the same time putting them through a kind of trauma that maybe makes it impossible for any human being to do that. Right. So here's an idea. What if you put term limits on a street officer, on a, a quote, beat cop, whatever, and whatever that term is, you know, 10 minutes, 10 years, well, you make it, you know, let the, let the doctors decide. And after that time, you have some options. You can go to detective school and become a guy in a suit and a tie who talks to the officers who secure the scene, or you can go and take further training and become a criminal psychologist. You can go up the food chain of academia and teach class. You can become an instructor weapons, strategy, whatever. But your time as a gumshoe or in the squad car, that's limited because the, let's all agree that the human psyche can take so much and then it goes pow. And it's, it's not good for that person's family. It's not good for them. They should not have a horrifying life that leads them to alcoholism, domestic abuse, shooting someone because they're in a bad mood. Let's all agree that cops have a job that most of us statistically do not want. Oh, it's, it's incredible what humans do to each other. And in America, you know, we are a place flooded with guns. And I think that idea of like, well, we need better background checks, that genie's never voluntarily going back into the bottle. 
And I was writing in my journal last night, thinking about this whole awfulness in that happened South in Carolina, South Carolina. Yeah. I said, you could take half of the guns off of the citizens of America, just have them go poof, just have half of them go away. If a guy like Dylan uh, Roof wants to get a gun, even after doing all of that, that guy would not have that hard a problem getting a gun within 24 hours. There's that many guns in America. And so there's no law you're going to pass that's going to make everything better. You have to change how we view each other, how we view our differences, our commonalities, the law. It has to be from the ground up. It's going to take generations and a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of patience, and a lot of money. Everyone is either looking at they're living quarter by quarter, election by election. No one is looking at the long term really far down the road unless they're making a campaign speech and then they're all about the future. A cynical person would say that that system is pretty well entrenched. I, I don't know how you undo that, undo elections. Maybe when you get sick enough of people walking into churches and just blowing away innocent people, maybe when we collectively are sick enough of that because it's happening often enough right you know as far as you know america's going to the dogs or whatever you know no slur upon dogs but you know america's going down the drain no america's headed towards the drain america america's hit bottom oh no 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 we're nowhere near the bottom we have so much money and so many resources the bottom oh we're falling towards it like a person jumping out of a plane without a parachute we're heading there, but when we hit, you'll know, because it's going to be like science fiction. It's going to be like one of those movies you see on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be like Blade Runner on growth hormones. And when that happens, maybe some of us will be slapped awake and go, oh, this can't happen tomorrow. It can't happen again, and we have to change. But until then, I don't think we've seen the rated G version yet. We had a moment in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment, uh, abolishing slavery. And we, we could have followed up in 1868 with the 14th Amendment and said, okay, slavery's wrong, and I see you guys over there. Stop doing that Jim Crow thing you're about to enact because we really need to get this whole equality train on the tracks. But we never did it. We never did it. We nodded towards it for elections. We made steps towards it, civil rights movement the Civil Rights Act of 1875, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but the promised land that Martin Luther King spoke of and all these amazing people have been trying to head towards. You might be cool. I might be cool. But we are sick. We got problems. And so I've given up on we, because I don't think we are going to get better. Um, We are Dylan Roof. And so I think it's going to take something that's so overwhelmingly huge. I don't think it's going to be the angry people occupying Wall Street. They just got pepper sprayed. They eventually went home because it got too cold. I don't think you're going to coordinate enough do-gooders to walk upon the White House without four Bradley fighting vehicles coming out and five people getting shot dead. And then someone saying, do we have an understanding? That's right. You're going home. But, But dig it. I know you know this. I'm just going to remind you. We are the ones with that power. You and me, we have that power. Unfortunately, that we is now a bought commodity. Votes are bought. People are coerced. Districts are gerrymandered. More Democrats than Republicans vote, yet you have a bicameral house that does not reflect that. 
and you get what you vote for. I mean, here we are. That's right. And any woe or ill in America, I take full responsibility. Like, if there's any politician you don't like. That was us. That's kind of on you. I mean, you, you might have voted against that person and lost. Okay, fair enough. But he's our problem. And you can't say, that's not my problem. Pal, you live here. It is your problem. And I, I will not divorce myself from that. And I will not shun any responsibility. That makes sense. Okay, round three. What do you have for us, Jonathan? So now we have James Glick on the common character traits of geniuses. I'm tempted to say smart, creative people have no particularly different set of character traits than the rest of us except for being smart and creative. And then on the other hand, I wrote a biography of Richard Feynman and a biography of Isaac Newton. Now there are two great scientific geniuses whose characters were in some superficial ways completely different. Isaac Newton was solitary, antisocial, fought with his friends as much as with his enemies. Richard Feynman was gregarious, funny, a great dancer, uh, loved women. Isaac Newton, I believe, never had sex. Richard Feynman, I believe, had plenty. So you can't generalize there. On the other hand, as I tried to understand their minds, the, the nature of their genius, I felt I was seeing things that they had in common. And they were things that had to do with aloneness. Newton was much more obviously alone than Feynman, but Feynman didn't particularly work well with others. He was known as a great teacher, but he wasn't a great teacher, I don't think, one-on-one. -on -one. I think he was a great lecturer. I think he was a great communicator. But when it came time to make the great discoveries of science, he was alone in his head. And this applies also, I think, to the geniuses that I write about in the information. Charles Babbage, Alan Turing, Ada Byron. They all had the ability to concentrate with a sort of intensity that is hard for mortals like me to grasp. A kind of passion for abstraction that doesn't lend itself to easy communication, I don't think. I mean, even the word genius is a bit problematic. It's like the word love. I love your dog. Okay. <laughs> you know, I love champagne. Oh, I love that guy. You ever met him? Well, no, but okay. Right. And so the word genius, because I come from the music world, and so no doubt you've heard the word genius being thrown at all kinds of musicians. Like Jimi Hendrix, I would say, was a genius. I guess we have to talk about what do we mean by that, but no one on earth ever played guitar the way that guy did. And of course, every human being is unique, so you could say nobody ever did anything the way anybody else ever did. But there's something transcendent and otherworldly about what he did. Well, yeah, especially for his age. To me, when I think of musical geniuses, there's a few people who I've assigned that word. You know, it's just an opinion, but it's mainly in the world of jazz. You know, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis. You know, they just changed where an entire genre of music was going. And then there's people like Prince, who are just so... I mean, forget his songwriting for a moment. When you just hear him play guitar, it's just not believable how good that guy is. And then, obviously, there's your literary geniuses. When you think of, like, Dostoevsky or Albert Camus or, you know, Twain, who could break it down to where everyone in town could understand, from the barber to the president. 
And so the word genius is one thing. The traits of people to whom the word genius gets assigned, I know people who I would consider incredibly smart, who are very well balanced and rational and you know, have families, and they just go to the lab or the studio or the office, and they just put the hat on and hit it. And then they come home to casserole at 5 p.m. But most of the people I know who you would say are genius, they're friendly enough, but you can see the difficulty. Like they landed their, their saucer and they get out and they can hang out with you for a while. <laughs> but you see them working hard to come up with sentences that will work. Uh, empathy. Hey, how are you? Do they not care? They're not being mean. They care. They don't want you to get hit by a bus. But whatever your answer is, they probably won't remember. And it's not because you didn't mention them or something in it for them. They're not concerned with anyone's health, really, not even their own. They're only concerned with the next thing, the next bit of work. They're not concerned with their next meal or when they're going to sleep. It is the work, the work, the work. These people are difficult to be around where after a few minutes, you're like, okay, I got it. That's all I need. Glad I met you. And we're so done. So maybe genius, as he says in the video, has something to do with obsession and being in a sense possessed by whatever your art is. I, I wanted to go back you mentioned Dostoevsky. For me, Dostoevsky, kind of like Shakespeare, does this unbelievable job of inhabiting the minds of human beings that you feel like you've met and that vary so much one from the other. And you just sit there kind of dizzy and saying, how can he shapeshift like that? There's a guy named Hubert Selby, the great writer. He wrote The Last Exit to Brooklyn, Requiem for a Dream, The Demon, The Room, Song of the Silent Snow. And I've never read anyone who was able to get into someone else to really upset you, to where you really wanted the book to be over. Because you couldn't put it down, but it really needed to stop. And I became very good friends with him, you know, from 1986 to the day I delivered the memorial at his funeral. We would discuss at length the people and their proclivities in those books. And he went, hey, it could have been me. Or in 1975, that was me. And I think where Dostoevsky maybe succeeds is he, he was a very moral person. But I think he allowed himself to go places where maybe there was a lack of morality or a different understanding of it or a momentary loss right. of it. One of the reasons there's a disconnect with a lot of people who are considered genius is they understand the world and they connect things in such a way where they have a real hard time connecting with Budweiser in a joint and watching The Simpsons. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with any of that. I'm just saying, I think they just have a hard time understanding why you would do that, why you're satisfied with that a second time. Probably it has something to do with them being more sensitive instruments and not sort of having the filters that enable other people to kind of numb themselves and go about their business and, and, and conduct themselves politely. You know, some people just blurt things out. You're like, okay, the whole table is yours now. Everyone's being very quiet. You just said, what? I said something wrong. I was like, uh, yeah, look at that person. You've mortified her. <laughs> So Larry David, or at least the character he plays in the Larry David show, is a genius. Like that. And I've been in those discussions with people where you have to walk them away before the angry man getting up from his bar stool is going to like thrash the guy. 
Like, I order you to get into the car now <laughs> and shut your mouth. There's an artist I knew, maybe the first full-on genius, this is not up for debate, genius I've ever met. And I, I knew him before everyone knew what a sensation this guy was. And now he's someone whose books are written about. But I saw him a couple of years ago. Like, what are you using for a belt? <laughs> I don't know. That's a necktie. I mean, he, he's a guy with millions of dollars. This amazing woman in his life who basically <laughs> says, okay, sit down, you're eating. And he, he's a gentle person, like wicked funny, just because he's so smart. But is his artistic engine, I've never seen anything like it. It was like maybe sharing time with Van Gogh, you know, Van Gogh. So it's probably good for people like that if they're lucky enough to find someone who's willing to become their caretaker. Well, yeah, they almost have a patron. You know, there's that rich woman, Von Konigsberg or whatever okay. her name was. And she would just say, well, you know, Monk is sleeping on my couch for the next week and a half because... He doesn't know where he lives, and he's out of money, and he needs a piano. <laughs> and I'm bathing him, feeding him, and letting him use the piano. Because, you know, Monk was slipping into a mental condition he'd never emerged from. There's some rock stars I know who I think are complete geniuses. You can't give them a straight job. They mean well, but they will break the thing, <laughs> burn the place down. Humans are interesting, because I, I think we're obviously quite dynamic, but I think at this point, we're, we're kind of like those rare breeds of dogs where they, they bred them a bit too much. I think we're kind of breeding ourselves into a cul-de-sac. We are monotypic, you know, homo sapiens sapiens. And we keep making little versions of ourselves century after century. And I think collectively, many examples of us are going a little bonkers. I think we're, we're there. We've really hit our human potential and now we can just sit back and dig the mutants. <laughs> I'm glad I'm sitting. I, my knees just went all gooey. All right, Henry. Thank you for taking so much time out of your 25 careers to do this today. It's no problem. <laughs> it's time to do the random quote generator. Would you do us the honor of pressing the button and reading the quote of the day to the audience? Unless it's something you profoundly disagree with, in which case, push it again. Okay. All right, let's see. It's a quote by a man named Nicholas Wirth. And the quote is, you may call me by my name, Worth, or by my value, Worth. <laughs> I think he's a very witty man, and that's not the first time he's used that or written it down. And if I had a name, W-I-R-T-H, as his is, I no doubt would have given some certain twist on that word a bit of thought. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. I hope I didn't overspeak. Speaking is what you do, isn't it? Unfortunately, yes. And that is Think Again for this week with Henry Rollins. You can find us on the web at bigthink.com forward slash thinkagain or on Twitter at bigthinkagain. See you next week. <laughs>